Welcome to the Unqualified Scholar Podcast. Blessings upon you wherever you are. I hope you're doing well. Let's uh, let's jump right in. What's the deal with perichoresis, and why should anybody care about it? Well, we used this this big theological word. I got really excited during the sermon when I heard Pastor Kyle, you know, drop perichoresis in there. If you're uncomfortable with perichoresis because it comes from the Greek, you can use the Latin circumincession. Um, they both refer to the same theological idea, something that's really a beautiful idea, something that we can really get kind of excited about because it is talking about God and it's talking about the relationship that God has in himself. And so we want to talk about perichoresis, this beautiful idea that God sort of overlaps in in his being in the Trinity. But before we get there, we have to kind of start with the Trinity. I first encountered the word perichoresis and its Latin friend circumcision when I was in systematic theology in seminary. This was the extra credit question on the exam. And so when I got the exam, I was so excited because I was able to get not just regular credit, but also some extra credit. I ended up doing okay on the exam. I had to write, I think it was about 10 pages handwritten. Uh, it took about two hours. I was really I love a good exam, don't you? Anyway, so we're, we're talking about perichoresis, and it's important for understanding the intimacy that God wants us to have inside our marriage relationship. Now, the idea of the Trinity is that God is three persons in one God, that God the Father is fully God, God the Son, Jesus, is fully God, God the Holy Spirit is fully God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God in three persons. Now, we have to be very specific in the way that we say that because we don't want to end up making a theological mistake. If we overemphasize the threeness of God, we would be guilty of having multiple gods and being polytheists. That's bad. You're not allowed to do that and be a Christian at the same time. We also don't want to overemphasize the oneness of God because that could lead to other theological problems. There's a theological heresy called modalism where people profess that there is one God who shows us his three different faces or personalities. Well, that's a heresy. You can't believe that either. And so in order to kind of make sure that we have um, a, a full understanding, or at least an understanding of what's right, so that we don't make a mistake. We're talking about the Trinity. And the Trinity is this beautiful idea that God is three persons, and yet one God. And so, I've used this analogy before of a river, where there are certain deep spots in the river that you must believe to be a Christian. The Trinity is one of those deep spots. If you profess to be a Christian, you have to believe in the Trinity. That's an, it's an established doctrine. It's not really, uh, there are, everybody who believes anything about God, there's controversy about it. Um, but there is, like within conservative 
Orthodox evangelical Christians, there's no real disagreement that God is three persons and yet one God. And so inside the river, there are plenty of things that we can disagree about. We can disagree about the way the church should be governed. Uh, we can disagree about elders or governance team. We have a governance team. We can disagree about uh, all different kinds of things. One of my favorite disagreements from church history is about laughter. August Hermann Franke said, all laughter is forbidden in church. And really in life, if you're going to follow God correctly, you can't be laughing all the time. Well, uh, it's my favorite because I do enjoy a good chuckle. And so that's a shallow spot in the river. Now, we, we don't want to be unhindered. We don't want to be like completely unfettered and, and just all about the chuckles. We do have to be serious from time to time, but uh, that would be a shallow spot in the river. Can women wear pants? Sure. That's a spot where Christians have a tendency to disagree about the role of women and the attire of women. And I mean, sometimes the attire of men. Uh, some pastors get told what kind of facial hair they can or cannot have. Uh, I'm accountable to Her Majesty. I am currently wearing the minimum amount of facial hair that is allowed by my wife. Now, one of the things we need to understand as we consider the Trinity, as we look and think about the history behind it, there is a, a long history in the church of teaching about the Trinity, that God is three persons and yet only one God. These, this idea of the Trinity is present in the early creeds of the church. Well, what is a creed? Well, I'm glad you asked. A creed is a fixed formula to express the content of the Christian faith. And these creeds, these ideas go back, back, back far into church history, all the way to the early, early church, and they were used to help teach people. Like, what's the outline of basic Christian beliefs that someone has to know and understand in order to express and profess that they are a Christian? Uh, so this was used in teaching, it was used in disciple-making, it was used in organizing worship, uh, it was used in a process before baptism. People often spent two years really understanding God and their relationship to Him before they could be baptized. And so it's a, fix, a creed is a fixed formula to express the content of the Christian faith. Creeds are good. Uh, there is an example of a creed actually in the Bible. And so you can see here, this is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So scholars who read this and interpret this, they believe this is a piece, a fragment of an early Christian creed that the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. Now they would have sort of picked up, oh, this is what he's talking about, and they would have understood that Christ died for our sins, and that sort of opens up a whole world of understanding of the role of Christ and what, he, what he's done for us. And so you could preach a you know, sermon or sermons about this. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Again, you can go back to the book of Acts and you can see the teaching of, of the apostles as they talk about the role of Christ and what Christ has done for us. 
So there's an incredible amount of importance that we can kind of use the creeds, we can glean from the creeds. There are good things that we can, um, we can still draw from the creeds to express our faith and the way that we trust God. So these creeds were often used for teaching, for instructing children, for bringing people from outside the faith into the faith. Now let me give you an example of an early Christian creed from about 215. <clears throat> now you'll recognize this. It sounds like the Apostles' Creed, but this is actually from a guy named Hippolytus. I wonder if that's what his mother called him. So this is the inter interrogatory creed of Hippolytus about 215. The first question is, or the first statement is, do you believe in God the Father, all governing? Obviously the answer would be yes. This is a creed is what you would ask someone who is coming to become part of the church, part of the Christian faith. If you don't believe in God the Father, then you believe something else. You belong to a different religion. Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was begotten by the Holy Spirit from the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and was buried and rose the third day, living from the dead, and ascended into the heavens and sat down on the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead? And so someone who is becoming a Christian, these are things that you must believe to be a Christian still, even now. Finally, the, the, other, the third question is, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Church, and in the resurrection of the body. And so creeds go back into the early church and they go back, I mean, 215, that's very early in the church. So the church was founded at Pentecost. People debate that. The church was founded at Pentecost and you can fight over it if you want. Um, when the Holy Spirit came and began this new work of God among the people of the world. And so as the church is starting, um, it, it very quickly became a religion that was kind of, people were chased around for being Christians, and you could be persecuted simply for professing the Christian faith. And so um, you had to kind of teach people on the run, as it were. And so the creeds are a way in a question and answer format by which you could instruct people what they believed and what they were supposed to believe, and also what they're not supposed to believe. And so you could, you could recite the creeds, you could sing the creeds, you could use the creeds to express what you believe to other people. Now, this has been tested in the history of the church uh, as a response to false teaching. You know, as, as people began to uh, teach bad doctrine, uh, the, the, the scholars of the church would get together, and they didn't so much get together to establish the deity of Jesus, to, to create the deity of Jesus, rather to establish what the church had always taught about the deity of Jesus Christ. And, and thus these creeds were very important because this is what the church has always taught. And so if you want to be a Christian standing in the river, you have to believe certain things. In the um, 300s, Arius the heretic said that Jesus was somehow derived from God. That God the Father was unique and eternal and preexistent and God the Son was lesser in his being. Well, the church kind of rose up against that because that is not what the church has always taught. The church has always taught the deity of Jesus Christ. And it was in response to the teaching of Arius that the church rose up and said, no, 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 wait. No, that's not what we've taught. 
Now it happened, uh, some of these church, this church council in particular, the council I think of Nicaea, that rose up to help define the deity of Christ. It came after Christianity, became a legal religion in the Roman Empire. So we went from being chased and hounded to suddenly being cool and being relatively popular. Lots of people coming into the faith. Now let's pause for just a minute. What's sort of the cash value of this idea? Okay, so Trinity, fine. But what's, I mean, we're Americans, right? And, and Americans, we like to know how is this practical? How do I use this in my life? Well, C.S. Lewis said this, All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was, before the world was made, he was not love. Okay, that's... That's the cash value, that God is in a relationship with himself, and as he creates, as he spawns the creation, what he wants is for his creation to experience the kind of loving relationship that he already has. And the way that we see this, the way that we do this, is through marriage. Okay, but before we get there, we're still on this Trinity idea and the question, and it's a fair question, is, all right, but where is it in the Bible? Because if it's not in the Bible, then the creeds don't really even matter. Well, good news, good news. The early scholars of the church didn't freelance, they didn't riff, they didn't make things up. Uh, biblical studies is very much, uh, I, I was going to say it's not jazz, but jazz takes things and improvises on them. So it re never mind, edit that out, just... I'm not going to edit it, but just take it out of your brain. Don't worry about it. Is the Trinity in the Bible? Yes. But you have to develop it. There is no, uh, there is no book of the Bible that's called systematic theology. We had to systematize the teachings of the Bible into a way that we, um, that we can kind of wrap our heads around. And most of the time, systematic theology asks and answers questions. What is God like? And so that's, that's where we get the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so you have to develop this idea that there is one God. And so let me just show you a couple. We'll, we'll whip through a couple Bible verses and um, kind of go from there. Now here is Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 is called the Shema. It's, very, it's a very famous piece of scripture. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so it's pretty clear, like right out, right out the gate, that when we're talking from Deuteronomy, we're talking about the oneness of God. You can find this idea also in the New Testament. You just pop over here to 1 Timothy, and 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God. Pretty straightforward, there is one God. But then we have this other doctrine of the deity of Jesus. And so the Bible at the same time telling us that there is one God also tells us that Jesus Christ is God. And so uh, this is uh, Philippians 2.5, which says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, the, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so right here we have in this text that Jesus, I mean, this is the way theologians in the uh, evangelical Orthodox traditions would understand this, that Jesus was equal with God, but he emptied himself to be a servant. A servant that went to the cross that died for our sins. And so uh, we can go further with Hebrews. So the author to the Hebrews is unknown to us, but he says this, this is right at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days he had spoken, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Pretty God-sized things there. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so over and over uh, on the pages, these, this is just a representative sample. These are not certainly not exhaustive of the concept that Jesus is God. And so we have to find some way to explain that God the Father and Jesus are one God and not two gods. Otherwise, we end up with sort of a, a binitarianism, a two-god situation. And we can't go there because if you look at Acts, uh, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira where they, they, they lie and uh, they, get, uh, they get killed for it. Um, Acts 5.3 says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so now here, Peter is equating deity with the Holy Spirit of God. And so now we have three there's the claim that Jesus is God. We have the Holy Spirit is called God. And then we have God the Father. How are we going to put this together in a doctrine that makes sense? Well, good news, good news. There is a doctrine that makes sense. And that doctrine is the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's another one from John 10. Uh, John 10, 30, John uh, 10, 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, Jesus doesn't say here, I am God. But if you read further, just the next paragraph, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. It's only blasphemy if it isn't true. And so if it is true, then we have this God-sized question that needs an answer. Millard Erickson in his Systematic Theology 
Systematic Theology is one of those things that's always fun to read. He says this. <clears throat> we should note that Jesus never directly asserted his deity. Yet several threads of evidence suggest that this is indeed how he understood himself. He claimed to possess what properly belongs only to God. He spoke of the angels of God as his angels. He regarded the kingdom of God and the elect of God as his own. Further, he claimed to forgive sins. The Jews recognized that only God can forgive sins, and they consequently accused Jesus of blasphemy. He also claimed the power to judge the world and to reign over it. And if that's true, then we have to answer the question of who Jesus is. One of the greatest questions that we could ever think about is who Jesus is. And so here we are, we have uh, considered the Trinity, and, and it's very important to understand that we're not talking about three gods. That would violate the oneness. At the same time, we're not talking about one God who shows us three faces. That would be too much oneness. The right way to say the Trinity, and this is according to this cat uh, named Gregory, not a literal cat, a person, named Gregory of Nazianzus. And what I wonder if his mom called him Greg. I don't know. Um, God the Father is God, but he is not the Son and not the Holy Spirit. God the Son is God, but he is not the Father and he is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, but he is not the Father and he is not the Son. And so whenever we think about the oneness of God, our minds should immediately turn to the threeness of God. Gregory of Nazianzus said this, I cannot think on the one without quickly being encircled by the splendor of the three, nor can I discern the three without being straightway carried back to the one. And so every time we think about the Trinity, we need to hold these two things in tension. When we think about the threeness of God, we turn immediately to the unity and the oneness of God. Now, there are a number of analogies that people have used, and every analogy, when you're trying to explain the Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, using something that is in the creation, you will invariably fall short because the creator is so much greater than the creation. And so some people have used the analogy of an egg. An egg has a shell, a yolk, and uh, the white. Yeah, shell, yolk, white, three things, one egg. But that doesn't seem to quite keep things together completely. You could also think about a pair of trousers. Uh, you have one pair of trousers, and yet there are three holes in the trousers. Augustine uh, thought there were three elements in love. And so St. Augustine, as he wrestled with the Trinity after 20 years, one of the most brilliant theologians in all of church history, he came up with that, that in love, there needs to be a lover, an object of the love, and the love that is between them. And so for him, that was the best he could come up with after decades of thinking and pondering the Trinity. Whenever you think unity, you need to think Trinity. And whenever you think Trinity, you need to come back around to unity. And so, okay, all right, so here we are. Um, how about we get to perichoresis, which is the thing that we're here for, right? And this is, this is what you came for. Come on, Pastor Todd, get to the point already. Well, 
we have to remember that the river analogy, the Trinity is not negotiable. It's one of the deep spots. It's established Christian thinking. What is it like in the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? You see, theologians through, through history have described this relational harmony, and they've given it the word perichoresis, or circumcession. means the same thing. It's the interpenetrating mutual love that the members of the Trinity have for each other. So the shorthand version of perichoresis is that uh, it's the mutual indwelling or mutual interpenetration of the members of the Trinity. A simple way to think about it is that the persons of God overlap in some way. They are distinct persons, but intimately connected. There is one God in community with the persons of the Trinity. And this is a big idea. I mean, after all, we're talking about God here. We're not talking about something that we can understand easily. If we can understand God easily, we wouldn't be talking about God. Perichoresis describes this relationship. Systematic theologian Millard Erickson says this. This term gives sacred... Oh, I'm sorry. Millard is one line up. Reading glasses. Perichoresis is the teaching that the life of each of the persons flows through each of the others, so each sustains each of the others, and each has direct access to the consciousness of the others. God the Father never has to wonder what God the Son is thinking, nor does God the Son have to wonder what the Holy Spirit feels about it, because they have this incredible, overlapping, interpenetrating relationship with one another. This term gives sacred expression to the interrelations among the persons of the Holy Trinity, asserting no less that, than that God has eternally been and will eternally be a mutually indwelling and interpenetrating communion of persons who exist in self-giving, life-giving love. What an incredible idea. And what an incredible understanding and aspiration that this is what God wants in our marriage relationships. This is what God wants in our intimate closeness with our spouse. You see, we were created in the image of God. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. But we were also created to image God to the people around us. And in order to do that, we have to restore our relationship with him through Jesus. And so once we have done that, once we believe and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are Christians. And as Christians, we image God to the world around us. And how often do we mess that up? How often do we not have the interpersonal unity and harmony and love that God has? We, we are created to model that kind of unity. God created man and woman in his image. And in his image, we are to image who he is to the world around us. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to go out right now and find a spouse and get married. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that inside our relationships as Christians, there's supposed to be this wonderful relationship of harmony and love and goodness. Our relationships, particularly our closest union, become a picture, an imperfect representation of the perfections of God 
of Trinity in unity. God's original intent was for two bearers of his image to image his love and intimacy to the world. Now, I, we've gotten all the way there to get all the way here. The place, the time when we are closest to understanding the love of God is in our sexual relationship. Now, there's sex and then there's sex, right? If you have kids in the room, you know, chew them out. Because I'm not talking about everyday sex. I mean, unless maybe you have that kind of relationship where you just, you are just like uh, sparklers and fireworks every time that you come together with your spouse. I hope that's true for you. But I'm talking about those times in our sexual relationship where we are just completely open and honest and giving with one another. That's the closest we get to this overlapping, interpenetrating relationship of God. Now, I'm not saying that God has sex. Stop it. What I am saying is in that moment of deepest intimacy, we have the tiniest picture of the kind of love that God has all the time. I don't think we could stand it as human beings. Now, I want you to take, I want you to do something with this information. So we've talked about the Trinity and hopefully you have, uh, you believe in the Trinity, right? I mean, you're a Christian. If you're listening to this, you believe in the Trinity. And so perichoresis is a natural outflow of God's relationship with himself inside the Trinity. And so what you need to do as a Christian is you have relationship work to do. So many times we have um, kind of an upside down view of our relationships. And so I want you to practice intimacy this week. That doesn't mean sex. That means intimacy. If you know what your partner loves and needs from you, then do that. If you know that your partner uh, needs a foot rub, then break out the peppermint lotion and rub your beloved's feet. If you know that your partner needs time away from those beautiful children that you have created or adopted or brought into your home, God bless you. If you need time away from those little monsters, get that time away because that's what you need. Play a game with just the two of you. Cuddle on the couch. Sometimes the greatest thing that my wife enjoys is when I just sit with her on the couch and we watch people buying houses for no reason. And we, we watch people baking cookies and pies that we're never going to eat. Do the dishes together. Fold the laundry. That's hot, guys. Trust me. Ladies, let him do it wrong. If you're single and you happen to be doing this, spend some time with a good friend. Spend some time cultivating intimacy in your best, closest relationships because that is where we model the intimate, perichoretic love that is in the Godhead. If you have questions or comments, of course, you can always reach out. Uh, happy to have you along for the ride. We are excited about all the things that we have coming up and going on. And so um, we want to understand better who God is, what he wants from us, so that we can become better servants. And so that in serving him, we have the kinds of relationships that please him and that, that work best for us. 
so that we can engage the world around us with the way that God is different and loving and special, and they're going to see that as they see us. Hey, thanks for being part of the Unqualified Scholar podcast. I hope you'll find us wherever we are, and uh, we'll see you on the internets.